Today I'm speaking with Dr. Nina Shapiro. Nina is a pediatric otolaryngologist. She's a pediatric ENT surgeon. And she's also a professor of head and neck surgery at UCLA. She's been featured in the New York Times, Time, The Wall Street Journal, NPR, CNN. And she's written a new book, the title of which is Hype, A Doctor's Guide to Medical Myths, Exaggerated Claims, and Bad Advice, How to Tell What's Real and What's Not. And uh, Nina is just a, a fantastic doctor, so I wanted to have her on the podcast to give us an insider's view of medicine. I wanted to know what it's like to be a patient as a doctor. What should patients know that doctors know? So we spend most of the hour talking about that, but then we touch on her book a little bit at the end. Anyway, it was great to talk to Nina, and I hope you find this conversation useful. And now I bring you Nina Shapiro. I am here with Nina Shapiro. Nina, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Unlike many of my guests, you are someone I know personally, and as a client, you're a fantastic doctor who um, has written a book that we'll be talking about. But so I, I just want to give that context because I can attest to the quality of your bedside manner and the quality of your friendship. So I, I've got a better view of you than, than most guests. Before we get into practical questions of health and your book, just remind me and, and tell our listeners about your background because you were sort of born to be a doctor, if I'm not mistaken. I, I guess so. Um, yeah, I do come from a medical family and um, you know, I don't have one of those really, really cool backstories about how I was first on Broadway and then ended up in medical school. I pretty much followed the track to medical school all on the East Coast, uh, did my residency uh, training and medical training back in Boston, moved out to California for a year, and that was 22 years ago. And certainly kind of like arriving like Dorothy in Oz, I realized how, how nice it was out here, so I decided to stay. And I've been in academic medicine at UCLA for about 21 years now. And my specialty, which is really small and very narrow, is pediatric otolaryngology, so pediatric ear, nose, and throat surgery. And I'm a professor at UCLA, so I do some teaching and a lot of what we call tertiary or quaternary care medicine, so you know, sort of the referral cases that come from all over the country and actually all over the world to take care of you know, pretty sick kids. So you did your medical degree at Harvard. Did you work anywhere else or you, you went straight to UCLA? So yeah, so I did my medical school at Harvard and I did my residency at Harvard. And then I did a combined pediatric otolaryngology fellowship part of the year at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, and then part of the year at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. And that's how I landed in California. Did you go straight into working with kids or did you work with adults for any significant period of time? So my residency was a mix of kids and adults, and that's pretty standard for all otolaryngology residency. And then once I did my fellowship right after residency, I've been working with kids ever since then. I'm always struck by how different the careers are depending on what type of doctor you decide to be. I mean, the overlap between being an ER doc and a dermatologist, as far as I can tell, is almost zero in terms of just what their life experience is like. So where would you put your specialty in terms of the high stress side of things and the technically difficult side of things? You're a surgeon as well as someone who just actually diagnoses 
problems. Right. So I sort of put my specialty, it's sort of like playing the piccolo in an orchestra where you do a lot of sort of regular day-to-day stuff, mundane. You don't really get noticed that much. Most of the stuff is pretty healthy people. And then every so often there's this piercing, life-threatening event that in a matter of seconds can go from great to horrific. So it's sort of, and I do play the piccolo, so I feel like there's there's some connection there where, you know, we, for the most part, we take care of healthy people and everybody smiles and it's pretty much, uh, you know, an enjoyable time. But because I take care of tiny infants and we as a specialty are the last resort when it comes to an airway problem. So if somebody can't breathe and if that somebody happens to weigh two or three pounds, we are the ones that are called. So every so often we have this excruciating life-threatening moment and that that just keeps us on our toes and we lose a little bit of sleep because of that. Also, you're dealing with people's kids, which has to raise the stakes. I can tell you just from the side of being a parent that it definitely does. I'm way more stressed out dealing with the uncertainty around my kids' health than my own. So I, I can imagine you are seeing parents at their most stressed out where the news is seeming bad. It is, yeah. And it and we sort of, we joke that, you know, the kids are the easy part. The parents are the hard part. Because, you know, kids are actually, for the most part, a lot more resilient than adults and, and they're healthier than adults. Um, but rightly so, parents are very, very stressed about anything related to their kids. And again, rightly so, but, you know, taking care of kids, we have a little bit of a different perspective because we know how much they can handle, just a lot, a lot more than we can handle, that's for sure. Yeah, well, so say more about that because I think a lot of the parental stress is predicated on not being in touch with that fact. When you've gone onto Google and read the fine print on whatever this scary diagnosis is and you see all of the horrific possibilities, you sort of transfer that knowledge or pseudo-knowledge, we'll talk about the problems with Google, onto your kid, I think, just tacitly, where you're, you're just assuming that, you know, this dark cloud hanging over your life now is casting the same amount of shade in your kid's mind, or at least could be. And of course, your kid, depending on the age, I mean, if your kid is in fact a kid, your kid knows nothing of these possibilities unless you tell them. And it's very likely that your concerns are out of proportion to the actual probabilities. And now speaking of me and many of our listeners, you not being a doctor are not weighing these possibilities intelligently. And so tell me a little more about how you perceive the experience of a child dealing with significant health adventures. So, you know, I hear a lot of concerns from parents, and some of these concerns are very, very well-founded. You know, for instance, if they're concerned about anesthesia or concerned about medications, you know, there's a lot of solid information about that that they can find. But, you know, as you mentioned, Google, and that's what most people, doctors included, actually use when we're looking something up or, you know, we're questioning something, is set to find the most extreme, most exaggerated information that, um, you know, it, it, it's devastating and, it, and it's, it's it, all it does for the most part is create some confusion and panic. And we love to panic. We love to sort of find the most extreme 
whatever it is, um, certainly when it comes to our health or our child's health, and it will be easily found if you do a search. Uh, so, you know, a lot of what I do day to day is calming people down and trying to put things into perspective. And what often people think about is the risk of an intervention, whether it's a medicine or a surgery, but few people are really thinking about the risk of not intervening. And they think of that always as less invasive when oftentimes, and certainly in my practice, being less invasive, less invasive or less proactive can actually be higher risk and more dangerous to a child. But a parent obviously just thinks of it as protecting their child from something, but that something could actually be much more beneficial than the risk of not doing something. It is an interesting view of human health you get working only on kids, because I think, as you say, kids are, for the most part, the healthiest people on earth, but obviously they're, they're the rarer cases where there's something very serious going wrong and the stakes are that much higher. Is there more to say about the resiliency of kids with respect to adults I mean, in terms of just recuperating from procedures that work out or just you know, most conditions being self-limiting? I mean, how do you think about the resiliency of a kid versus the resiliency of um, someone our age? So for the vast majority of kids, they are much more resilient than most adults. Their hearts are stronger. Their lungs are, are stronger. Um, when they have an infection, they recover more quickly. When they have any sort of surgery, they recover more quickly. And, you know, it's astounding as some, you know, kids will go home the same day or the next day after a small heart surgery. You'd never see that in an adult. Um, you know, kids have these devastating illnesses or, or a devastating event um, and, and they bounce back. It's, it's really, they are almost a different, you know, obviously not a different species, but they're really a different type of being than adults. And because they seem so much more fragile and helpless, we rightly want to protect them more. But, but their resilience is so much better, stronger, and quicker than any adult's resilience that, you know, we who take care of kids have, you know, sort of a different view on what they can tolerate. And it's a lot more than, than what most adults can tolerate. Yeah. I once saw my daughter fall down the stairs from a distance. I mean, this is still, uh, I'm, I'm still horrified by this sight. I can't get, <laughs> I still have PTSD, I think, from seeing this. And this was a fall that would have absolutely paralyzed a stuntman. I mean, this was just, everything was wrong about this fall. It looked like her attempt to break her own neck, and she was completely fine. Right. So you sort of lose sight of that when you're being dragged through this labyrinth of medical uncertainty with your child. And yeah, some of, you know, kids, if you, if you look at a little child, and, you know, we always say, oh, children are not just small adults. They're built to, to withstand stuff like that. Their, their necks are smaller. Their heads are kind of puffier and more, you know, kind of cushioned than ours are. So, you know, a lot of just physiologically and physically, kids are physically built to tolerate falls. They're babies. They're even like something as simple as a baby's vocal cords. What do babies do when they're not sleeping? They're crying, but they don't develop hoarseness or nodules or, you know, vocal issues from crying for 10 hours per day because they're built to withstand that. So, you know, it's some sort of evolutionary ability 
for kids to withstand a lot of the trauma that we as adults, you know, if we fell down the stairs, we'd crack our necks or break our skulls. But kids, you know, literally we say they bounce and, and it's great. You know, that's, that's why they can go on to adulthood and then get hurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I want your doctor's eye view of being a patient essentially, or, or, or the parent of a child who's a patient. And I want to know how you go through these experiences of getting sick or having people in your life get sick and just, you know, how it is you would navigate a hospital and, you know, how you think about second opinions and all of that. We've touched a couple of these issues already. You get a diagnosis that sounds scary from one doctor. You go home and Google it and get properly terrified by the what is, in many cases, a very low probability risk. and then it's certainly standard procedure to get a second opinion. Certainly, if there's any significant intervention on the menu, like a surgery. At this point, I have gone down this path enough that all this is anecdotal, obviously, but if judging from my experience, both when I'm the patient and when my kids have been, it's fairly alarming how often I've gotten a false diagnosis, you know, that is overturned by a second opinion. And in some cases, the first diagnosis came with a very strong recommendation for treatment that was a significant intervention. I once left a doctor's office where, I forget, this is now 10, 15 years ago, I was having some problem. I think I had pain in my hands or something. I, mean, I was a martial artist. There were plausible reasons why I might have pain in my hands. But I wound up in the care of a rheumatologist who diagnosed me with I think it was psoriatic arthritis, and sent me out of the office with a month's supply of methotrexate and Humira, which are significant medications, and basically was, you know, putting me on these drugs for the rest of my life. And, you know, it, it seemed quite crazy at the time. And I went and got a second opinion, and another rheumatologist said, well, you don't have psoriatic arthritis. You probably just did something to your hands. But that kind of thing has happened with my daughters. It's fairly startling. And in fact, I, I met you in this context, or at least I've met you professionally in this context, where I think my daughter had been diagnosed with a cholesteatoma by a pediatrician, and this is very much in your wheelhouse. I had never even heard of a cholesteatoma. And I brought her into you, and you took one look in her ear and said, well, she doesn't have a cholesteatoma. But, you know, I had spent 24 hours previously having Googled a cholesteatoma and realized how much I didn't want her to have one. And, you know, it was a fairly stressful day. So how do you think about second opinions and what advice do you have for people? Because doctors obviously can quite confidently represent some state of affairs that isn't true. Yeah, second opinions are, you know, surprisingly a luxury. A lot of people don't have the wherewithal or the means to obtain second opinions, unfortunately. So a lot of people, you know, just are lucky and feel lucky that they can just get in to see a doctor. And unfortunately, a lot of people are misdiagnosed or, you know, receiving overly aggressive or underly aggressive treatment. And this is a big problem. Um, you know, I, as you, you know, you've had the experience with your daughter, you know, I, I see patients and I, you know, sometimes they're a bit disappointed when I say, nope, there's not the problem and your child doesn't need surgery. And the family actually leaves a little bit frustrated because they, they almost wanted there to be something. And I, I tell them, you will find a surgeon who will operate on your child, you know, guaranteed. Um, so it is, 
it is a problem and it uh, there isn't really the why this is happening why people in different medical centers recommend different treatments unless it's something that's you know has several pathways for instance if if you have a cancer patient there are several different ways to approach it whether it's surgery chemotherapy surgery chemo radiation you know there are some variations to those sorts of paths and a lot of that depends on the medical status of the patient, how healthy they are, their age, what they can tolerate. But, you know, this sort of stuff where somebody doesn't have something and then they end up getting a surgery, that is not good medical care, unfortunately. I think, you know, if you have a new problem and you have the wherewithal to obtain two or even three opinions and it's not something urgent, I think I do encourage people to do that. And for the most part, you will find, you know, for instance, if it's a surgical issue and you see two surgeons, you may find some minor variations in how they do the surgery or exactly what type of surgery. But if one surgeon says operate and the other surgeon says absolutely don't operate, then you need a third opinion to to Mm. sort of break the tie. But, you know, it's a problem. What about bias built into the disciplines? I mean, so, for you know, surgeons have the tool of surgery, and I think it's a common concern and maybe a valid one that if you go to a surgeon for advice, really his or her choice will always be, well, to operate or not. And that could bias you in the direction of getting surgery that perhaps you don't need. I mean, I guess the, the, this is somewhat linked to the question of whether or not to get certain kinds of tests. Like I remember once, again, this is back to my own personal martial arts generated problems, but I was having some back pain and I asked my doctor whether he thought I should get an MRI of my back. And he said, well, you know, you're whatever it was at the time, 40 years old. I can guarantee you, you have at least one bulging disc. You'd be a, a miracle not to have something that we can image there. And seeing it in your scan is not going to tell you whether it really is the source of your symptoms. And then you are going to want to have a conversation with a surgeon and you will find one who will say, yeah, we could you know, shave that off for you, or this is something that we can talk about. And you know, why start that process at all when what I'm going to recommend you do, whatever we see on that film is you know, do physical therapy, back off the martial arts and avoid surgery at, at, you know, at almost any cost for a problem of this scale. There's this problem of too much information and maybe there's this problem of talking to the wrong specialty too early. Well, ho- hopefully not. I-, I like to tell people that they don't need that their child doesn't need surgery. And I think, you know, we have to sort of wonder, you know, where if it's if it's that much of a concern if you if people are feeling that you you can't go to a surgeon for an evaluation because they are a hammer and they're just looking for a nail, um you know, that, that says that's a pretty negative feeling or, you know, concern about medicine in general that, you know, if you go to a certain specialty, they will find a problem related to their specialty. And I, you know, and I think that's what's created a lot of, you know, sort of mistrust of, of medicine and rightly so, because people are, you know, known to overoperate, as you said, you know, you have a small disc problem that could probably be remedy just by taking, you know, some physical therapy or resting or doing different exercises as opposed to, oh, you know, you have a disc bulge, we need to operate on it. And, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of 
doctors out there, a lot of surgeons out there who are sort of cutting, you know, recklessly or unnecessarily and, you know, with the same result as not doing surgery. But, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that that's, that's how it's become, that people feel that if they go to a rheumatologist, you're going to leave the office with a rheumatologic disease. Or if you go to a, a spine surgeon, you're going to leave, you know, scheduled for spine surgery. And, um, you know, I think that's, I don't know how to sort of purify medicine or how we can sort of get back to, well, if you go to a surgeon and the surgeon tells you, you don't need surgery, actually, some people are disappointed with that recommendation and they'll go find someone else who will recommend surgery. But um, I think if there is something so drastic that's recommended, then you do need to get a second or a third opinion. Does this all just fall into the been of there being a normal distribution in the talent and knowledge and ethics and any other relevant variable among doctors as there is in almost anything else. I, mean, I think this is something that people don't realize or don't want to realize because there's not really a good or obvious remedy for it. But I mean, we, we recognize that there's a normal distribution of ability in any domain. I mean, baseball players aren't all the same skill level and you could extend this to every profession, but I think we all want to assume that doctors are all at the same level or that the differences between them don't matter. How do you as a doctor think about that? I mean, when a friend of yours has to get a surgery and is asking you, you know, how to find a good surgeon, is there a kind of insider knowledge of there being good surgeons and bad surgeons in medicine or do the bad surgeons magically disappear? Uh, bad surgeons uh, never disappear, unfortunately. I, th- you know, I think there is a, a little bit of an insider track that that we in medicine are privy to. You know, certainly if you work in a large medical center, you know, we sort of know certainly how to navigate this very complex system internally, and then even around the country. You know, for instance, if I get a call from a friend across the country and their child or they need a surgery or have a specific medical problem, you know, it's one of those almost like a six degrees of separation, but it's usually only two or three degrees. Within a phone call or two, I could find them the right person that is trustworthy, has a good background, has a, you know, has good ethics, as you said, and is not just operating because they feel everybody needs a certain type of surgery. So, you know, and there is, just as with most fields, there is a little bit of an insider tract. And, and one of the, the benefits of being in medicine is that we have pretty good access to other specialists pretty quickly. All right. So we'll give your phone number at the end of this podcast, and you'll just get a few calls <laughs> a day for medical referrals. Just my home address yeah. would be good. Yeah. <laughs> so this just brings me to my wanting your doctor's eye view of getting pushed or dragged into the machine of medical attention. And so you're sick or someone close to you is sick and you now have to go to the hospital. What do you as a physician know about checking into a hospital that the average patient might not? What are your concerns? What do you want to avoid at all costs? What kind of questions do you ask that might not occur to the average person to ask 
how do you navigate a hospital? Um, so, you know, that really depends on whether it's an, something that's planned, you know, a scheduled procedure or a scheduled admission or surgery versus an emergency situation. Obviously, if there's an emergency situation and it's something in my home hospital, whether it's as when I was a resident in, you know, across the, across the country or now here in Los Angeles, you know, we do have, there is a little bit of professional courtesy, just as with, if you're in any other line of work, you will get a little bit of professional courtesy and perhaps get in the door a little more quickly, get seen by who you want to get seen a little more quickly. But what I've found, and, you know, certainly living and working in Los Angeles, where we have a very substantial VIP population, um, you know, as we say, everybody's a VIP. Uh, but we we have VIPs, they often try to create and navigate their own treatment plan. And it ends up being creating the worst possible medical care. They may ask for somebody who they think is the best anesthesiologist, for instance, but because the person has a, a high administrative title, but they have no experience with their medical, their their family member's medical condition, it may be the absolute wrong person. People also have this notion that they want to be the first procedure of the day, you know, for a, a surgeon's busy schedule. Well, that's not always necessarily the best time to have surgery. Or I don't want any, you know, if you're in a teaching hospital, I don't want any residents or medical students around. Well, if we're used to a certain way of practicing, and then somebody tries to change that routine because they think they'll get better care, it actually just makes for more anxiety on the part of the caregivers and can create actually a, a worse care situation. So oftentimes, you know, it's best to just go with the flow of a hospital because they know what they do best. They know their routines, how they do them best. And sometimes trying to alter that, even if doctors, we as doctors try to alter the, the routine of the caregivers, it can actually backfire and get in the way. So, you know, a lot of hospitals, especially the big ones, are very frustrating. They feel very inefficient. But a lot of that is just the nature of how they work and, and the care ends up being better sometimes by not making a big stink about who you are and who you know. and and, you know, trying to sort of cut corners. Has this been quantified in any way? It's hard to see how it would be quantified, but I, I'm sure there are some famous cases where some, you know, Hollywood celebrity got what was obviously substandard care because the whole machine of the hospital was thrown into disequilibrium by all of his or her demands and all of the star fuckery going on. Is that what you're thinking of when you when you talk about this? Yeah, I mean, certainly there have been some extreme cases. It was, uh, you know, the, there was a, you know, one of the babies at one of the hospitals in Los Angeles, you know, received, you know, a, a you know, a thousand times the amount of a, a certain medication, and you know, had a life threatening bleed, and that was, you know, a movie star's kid, and and even if they weren't getting treated, you know, differently by a different team, you know, everybody sort of has a little more anxiety when it's, you know, a movie star or, you know, a politician or, or a well-known person, you know, just it's human nature to feel a little more anxious because of that. And, um, you know, we all feel, you know, we all take care of these, these you know, well-known people 
and the ones who sort of go with the flow, again, no, no major tragedies that I know of have happened, certainly in my experience, but I feel better almost when I don't know who, who they are in advance, as opposed to knowing, oh, this famous person is coming in and we have to do this and, and create a whole new sort of scenario because, of, because they are who they are, as opposed to just doing what we do. But there have been cases, I mean, they've been in the news about, you know, stars having these tragedies. And it's hard to know if it was because they were who they were, or it just happened to be no- newsworthy because, because they're famous. Mm. Well, so you, you touched on one point, which is a bit of a pet peeve of mine based on some personal experience. So the, the issue of going into a teaching hospital, my default demand in those situations is, you know, I don't want anyone learning a procedure that carries any significant risk on me or my children. And, you know, I'm, I'm totally in touch with the paradox here of the, the ethics of pedagogy. I mean, people have to learn how to do these procedures. I want them to learn it. I just don't want them to learn it on me or my daughters. It's defensible in the moment because it's just she gets one chance to receive this intubation or whatever it is, and I want somebody who's an expert doing it. What's your sense? I know you have to play both sides of this, but what's your sense of the reasonableness of that demand? Oh, you know, I think it's a very reasonable demand. And I think that um, more now than ever, residents, interns, medical students actually have less autonomy than they did years ago. It's not, you know, the notion of, you know, the anesthesiologist is, you know, out playing golf or in the cafeteria while you're, you know, your family members, you know, undergoing anesthesia is, it is certainly no longer the case. You know, usually if a resident or a medical student is involved in a case, it's usually as an assistant. Um, so, you know, that autonomy is becoming less and less of an issue and a concern for, you know, for patients when they're going to a teaching hospital. The negative side is that I think because resident hours are restricted and they work fewer hours per week and they take less overnight call. I'm curious to see in a generation or two what sort of doctors we have because they are getting a lot less experience during their residency training and a lot less hands-on than than I did, that's for sure. But there has to be a first time where someone is actually flying the, the ship him or herself. There's a first time you you're the one performing, you know, that part of the surgery or any specific intervention that runs a risk of going wrong, I can imagine you can ride shotgun on that as many times as you like, but at a certain point, you're holding the knife for the first time. I mean, there's just, there's no way to make it any more incremental than that, is there? There is actually. I mean, there's so many parts, you know, for instance, an intubation, for instance, is not just, you know, it's not like watching ER where they're, oh, I'm in, you know, it's, there's, there's several steps to it. So, you know, a lot of times in a residency training, it's, it's a gradual rise to doing something. Or if you're assisting in a, you know, let's say it's a liver transplant, you know, they're, you know, a, an eight hour surgery, there's so many parts to it. You know, the skin incision is the smallest part, but people think of that as, oh, you know, the knife, but you're not, you know, cutting through the liver with the skin incision. So, you know, there is, there is sort of a gradual rise to what you do, certainly in a surgical field or an anesthesia field. It's not just all or nothing. And so how has training 
changed in recent years. I, I, I've heard rumors that residents are now no longer as sleep-deprived as they, they used to be. Uh, that, to the layperson's ear, sounds like a wholly good thing, except I just heard you worry that maybe we're not producing a generation of doctors that are as pressure-tested as your generation is. Just give me a, a picture of how training has changed in recent years. Yeah, training has changed remarkably. It started uh, with the Libby Zion case in the 80s, where you know a, a college girl came into an emergency room in New York and she received a medication that interfered with her daily medication and she died. And the claim was that this was due to the residents, one, sleep deprivation, and two, uh, not being supervised, but primarily it was the issue of sleep deprivation. And ever since that case became an issue, residency work hours have been restricted to, you know, 60 to 80 hours per week. And, and also within that, they ha you have a limited amount of number of hours in a row that you can be working. So yes, for the most part, this is great. And it makes for much happier residents, much more balanced residents, residents who will likely stay in medicine because they have a balanced life. I mean, the word residency would literally mean that you would be a resident of a hospital and you would live, pretty much live there. And, you know, those of us who trained before these restrictions, you know, we do feel that, you know, we worked over 100 hours per week and we would stay in the hospital for two or three days at a time. And, you know, we would sort of joke that the, the only bad thing about being on call every other night is that you miss half the cases. So, you know, it's just, just a different mentality of, of, you know, what, you know, that certainly when it comes to surgeons, you know, that we're sort of tough and we could work hard and, you know, we're invincible, but, you know, it's not a human way to be. And, you know, the, the, the early studies looking at the metrics of whether this is really beneficial have shown that, you know, there, there's some improvements in, you know, the question is really, are fewer mistakes being made? That's really what the outcome is going to be. Fewer medical errors, um, better patient outcomes. And, you know, the studies have been mixed as far as, you know, whether that's really the case, because there's so much less continuity of care. So even if it's a tired resident, you're still taking care of the same patient and you're not passing the baton every six or eight hours. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. And what about the augmentation of doctors' abilities or, or degradation based on access to information? We, we've got doctors or, or residents who jump on their smartphones to aid in a diagnosis. It used to be that no one had a smartphone and you had to have, presumably, you had to have more facts in your head, although obviously there were, there were fewer facts to be known. How do you view the use of technology here? Is it all to the good or is it undermining people's abilities in any respect? Well, you know, for the most part, it's good and, and because most people who are working in medicine know how to navigate technology and find valid articles or useful pieces of information. But the problem is, you know, we would have to go to the library and figure out what to search. And maybe if we had a computer, we can put in some search terms. But the, what people have lost is the thinking ability to figure out how to find what they're looking for, or how to sort of investigate it as opposed to just pushing a few buttons on your smartphone with a keyword 
and you'll dig around and the the information will sort of come to you. So it's a little bit of a, a sponge effect as opposed to a shark where you're actually going to look for the information and figure out how to find the information because you have a smartphone or a tablet that you're walking around with. It takes out a little bit of the the effort to get the information, but you can get it very quickly. Is AI yet making any inroads into your experience as a doctor? I had thought that like IBM Watson has a medical product where it's not just a matter of a human brain searching a database, but it's significantly facilitated by some form of narrow AI. Is that showing up yet or, or not? Not quite yet on, in the mainstream. I mean, certainly we talk about it and heard about it. Um, you know, it, I think we're more still at the level of robotics, which is a little bit of, it's not really AI, but it's a little bit of artificial function. You know, we, we, don't, we don't touch the patient anymore. A lot of the time when we're doing surgery, it's a robot who's doing the surgery and we're sitting across the room. So, you know, I think there, there's certainly some, I guess the A part is definitely part of medicine, but the AI, not, not quite yet in the mainstream. So what percentage of your surgeries are done with a robot? Actually, mine are not. A lot of head and neck surgeries are, though. So a lot of surgeries in my department, um, I'd say probably 15, 20% are done with a robot. And is that a totally different skill set manually? I mean, is that just you have to learn how to pilot a robot as opposed to actually work on a human body? Yeah. So it's an extra, extra training. Sometimes it's a full year of fellowship or, or several, you know, extra training courses, depending on where you are in your career to learn how to, to work the robot. It's pretty amazing. It's, it's pretty cool to see. It is literally, you know, it feels like rocket science because the robot arms can get to areas that, that human instruments, you know, human fingers with instruments can't get to. So, you know, it's really, it's a revolutionary technique. It's in its infancy. Um, certainly it's not perfect yet, but but it has really improved patient outcomes because you can do these tiny little surgeries without being so aggressive and and get the same outcome. Mm. And is this one of these things where most hospitals would not have this resource and it's the difference between being in a big city hospital like UCLA and being elsewhere? Yes, it's it's pretty it's at this point, limited to large academic centers or large, you know, medical centers in, in cities because it's, it's a pretty specialized device. So take me back to you in the hospital, let's say, caring for a loved one. And let's not make it UCLA. So you're just in through dint of bad luck. You and your family are in some other city and someone has to be hospitalized. How do you think about risk mitigation from the side of being a patient? Is there anything you you think you do differently or questions that you ask that most people wouldn't know to ask because they're not, they haven't seen the other side of medicine? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're, you know, we're a two surgeon family. So, uh, you know, we, we can't help ourselves by, by, you know, sort of becoming involved in whatever our family member is, is going through. So it's, it's sort of, you know, we're stuck with that information. So clearly we're going to have bias and Clearly, we're going to, you know, question the doctors differently and question the medical care. Um, but, you know, we try, you know, we have been in this situation. I have been traveling with my family where a family member has needed urgent hospitalization in the middle of what we thought was the middle of nowhere. It seemed like the middle of nowhere. It was very beautiful, but it was, you know, up in the mountains in Northern California. And, um, 
you know, it was the, the question was, and we were faced with this, we were in this very small, lovely hospital with very little care. Um, and the question was whether we should take the risk of driving seven hours home with a, with a, a critically ill child or whether we should sort of tough it out and stay in this very rural hospital. And we rightly decided to stay. And we, we ended up getting very good care. And I think, you know, it's hard as a doctor and it's hard as a doctor working in a tertiary medical center to, to give some trust to people outside of your sort of known area. But, um, you know, we did end up just taking a step back and, and being the patient and being the patient family and, and everything worked out. I think, you know, you ha- you know, if you, you know, you travel around the world as a family, you can't, you know, have everything at your fingertips at all times. And you do have to, you know, sort of relinquish some, some control in those situations. What would you do differently than a naive patient would? Like you're in a hospital, it's a big city hospital. It's just not your hospital. You don't know anyone personally in the hospital. And you're now in dialogue with a doctor who is dealing with the medical emergency around your son. What are you asking the doctor that I won't think to ask? That's a great question. You know, it's, it's, it's really hard not to just sort of participate in the decision-making when, you know, especially if it's a family member. Um, you know, I think I would probably just ask more specific questions about a, a particular medical issue just because I'm, a, I'm, you know, even though I have a, a narrow subspecialty, you know, we're all doctors, we have some basic medical knowledge. So I would probably be asking different questions than, you know, someone who's not medical, just as when I take care of doctor's kids or surgeon, you know, and or surgeon's kids, they're going to be asking me different questions than, than someone who's not in medicine. And, you know, it's just the nature of it. And, you know, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a club. So we have, you know, this quiet understanding among, amongst ourselves that, that, you know, they know that I know. And, you know, so there's a little bit of, you know, it's almost like a little bit of a club that, that they know that I'm going to know some medicine and, and they're going to have to be, you know, speak to me a little bit differently than if it was someone who was non-medical. Does it come down to things like, just to take uh, surgery as an example, like if you're in a big city hospital, is it acknowledged that there's a range of abilities and outcomes, you know, the, the statistics associated with each subspecialty with with each surgeon or each anesthesiologist, is it coherent to say something like, and would you say something like, you know, I, I want you to give me your best anesthesiologist? Would it be acknowledged that there's a best anesthesiologist or would it be just guaranteed that everyone would be thinking and saying, well, all of our anesthesiologists are good? I think, I think the latter actually, and I get that question all the time, <clears throat> you know, is there you know, I want your top anesthesiologist or I want your best team. And there is no, you know, every, there's, there are a lot of really good ones. And, you know, what I tell people is I only work with people I want to work with and I have the luxury to do that. And I think that, you know, people get sort of wrapped up in, oh, I want the, I want the chair. Or I want the most senior person or the most experienced. That's not always in, in your best interest. You know, I think that you want somebody good. You want somebody to do a good job. And I think if I were you know, with my family member and at a hospital and it was a, you know, a surgical situation or even a medical situation, I would just want people who are good and, and not necessarily, I want the best. I think people, there is no best, there is no worst. 
Um, and, you know, a lot of those choices are out of our control. And I think when you start to do that, and, you know, again, we talked about how in Los Angeles, people try to create uh, their, their OR team because they're VIPs and they think they can create this best team that, that that's when care gets sort of declined. And, and I actually try not to do that if we, you know, if I was in the situation in and out, you know, across the country in a city hospital where I didn't know anybody, I wouldn't demand the best or, you know, the top or the most senior because those may not necessarily be the right group at the time. Mm. Well, yeah, because you, you might be just dragging someone in who, who's in, in the sort of fundraising period of uh, his or her career and is actually not the best, even though they're the chair or whatever. But we've already acknowledged that there's a range of abilities among surgeons and presumably every other discipline. So, you know, if there are bad surgeons out there, presumably you don't want to get one. So what would you do to avoid getting a bad surgeon or any other specialist who's not as good as you want? Well, you know, again, it depends on this. If it's an emergency situation, unfortunately, you get what you get and you don't get upset. But if it's, you know, if it's somewhat more elective, you know, again, even though, you know, if we're in a strange place, you know, we can always make a few phone calls and, and, and find out, you know, kind of the inside scoop a little bit. But I think for someone who's not in medicine and can't do that, um, you know, you can, I'm always reluctant to look at those online reviews of doctors, people, you know, Yelp and all those other systems are, are extremely inaccurate. Um, you know, I think, it, you know, even just asking around, you know, your hospital team, you can, you can usually find out, you know, the nurses are usually the best judges of doctors. So, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll often tell you whether you have a good surgeon or not. Are there good unbiased sources of information with respect to outcomes, so if, like if you need heart surgery and there are two big hospitals in your city, is it easy to get the outcome measures for that specific surgery in those two hospitals? Um, there are some metrics. You know, there's something called the Leapfrog Group, which looks at hospital, you know, larger hospital outcomes. And, you know, for instance, if it's a heart surgery or, you know, a major, major surgery that you're, you're considering for you or your family member, you can get the outcomes for hospitals and for individual surgeons. But, you know, even with that, there's always going to be a little bit of, you know, internal bias, for instance, oh, were they taking care of more complicated patients? And that's why they had higher risks and more complications because they were taking care of, you know, the sickest of the sick as opposed to the healthy patients that just come in off the street for their first surgery. So, you know, it is, it's hard to obtain a lot of this sort of pure data on surgical outcomes because there's so much more involved because these are patients with other sort of issues going on. Yeah. I mean, at UCLA, you've got people being flown in by helicopter to deal with something that the other hospital couldn't deal with. Okay. So I've spent a lot of time talking to you about everything that's not in your book because I wanted to get your, um, view of all this. And, and this is fine because our conversation will not exhaust the interest of, in your book and people will just have to read it. But let's pivot now to your book and what you think people should know about how to maintain their health and the health of their families. Your book is Hype, A Doctor's Guide to Medical Myths, Exaggerated Claims, and Bad Advice, and How to Tell What's Real and What's Not. And you go through all of these areas, I mean, some of which we've touched, but 
you know, many which we haven't, like diet and alternative medicine, vitamins, the kinds of things that people should reach for as remedies or do reach for as remedies in ways that may be ill-considered, and the kinds of a perception of risk that guide these decisions which aren't really, at the end of the day, all that rational. So if you could give, in five minutes, advice for a member of our species in the year 2018 with respect to how a person should think about staying healthy, what are the first things you would say? Well, you know, I think one of the inspira- or one of the main inspirations for for writing the book was that I was hearing, whether it was at work or you know socially or family, you know, outside families, you know, my inspiration was that everyone there were so many people who were misguided on the ideas of what is healthy. It's such a basic idea that I would come home from work or come home from, you know, a school drop off and my head would be spinning, wondering how, where are people getting this information and, and did I miss something? You know, what's good for you, what's risky, what's harmful, what's toxic, what's contaminated, all these buzzwords going around. So, you know, the goal was really to to help people relax. And we're all, you know, we all worry. We're all concerned about our health, our family's health, the health of this planet, the health of our species. And we are grasping at all of these extreme measures to obtain this so-called perfect health or adequate health that we've lost sight of the basics. And, you know, risk was, is one of the biggies. And I, you know, I have a whole chapter on risk because people have this kind of bizarre notion of what's risky for their health or what's risky for their families. And they're completely missing the boat on, on what's really risky and what's really healthy. So, you know, I think that the goal of the book was to put people's minds at ease a little bit and also put some perspective into what we are so worried about, what we're so focused on, and you know, but lost focus on what's really ma- what really matters and what's really basic to keep ourselves alive and healthy. I mean, what what do we want? We want to live long. We want our families to live long, and we want to live well. We want to have healthy living, not just a long number of years. It doesn't matter if we live to ninety five if we are you know, in a vegetative state for the last 15 years of our lives. We want to live healthy lives and, you know, and long, you know, that's the other issue is how many years, what's the magic number of years we want to live. So, you know, they're, they're very simple things we need to do, not necessarily, and it doesn't necessarily involve a juice cleanse or a detox or an extreme diet or, you know, you know, all of these, you know, kind of create to me crazy notions of you know how how to keep ourselves healthy mm. what are the primary pieces of advice you would give I'll, I'll start you off with don't smoke cigarettes and if you're smoking quit don't smoke cigarettes quit smoking um you know and then you know just briefly about smoking you know so what what was created to help people stop smoking it was first you know nicotine patches nicotine gum and then vaping and now vaping has become the gateway for kids to start smoking. So, you know, that's that's sort of turned 180 degrees to the negative where electronic cigarettes were supposed to be used to help people quit smoking. And now it's used in middle schools 
you know, juuling is the new term, apparently, to, you know, to get kids to start smoking because it tastes like candy. Um, so, you know, obviously stop smoking. Basic stuff. If you bike, wear a bicycle helmet. That, you know, people die biking just from not wearing a helmet. If you're out in the sun, wear sunscreen. People die from skin cancer every day. You know, if you're in a car, wear a seatbelt. And these, you know, they seem so obvious, but this is how people don't survive. Um, if you have a phone, don't text and drive. If you have a teenager who's learning to drive, make sure they know they cannot text and drive. This is how people die in car accidents. They're not dying from Ebola infections. They're dying from texting and driving. So these are very basic things that, you know, everyone can say, oh, yes, yes, of course not, of course not. But we all do it. We all, we all put our, our lives in danger every day. You know, if we live in a big city, even if we live in a small town, we all drive. You know, we, we put our kids in the car. We, you know, we have our phones going off. We have so much distraction. And this is, you know, just numb, you know, pure, boring numbers wise. This is how people don't survive. I want to linger on texting and driving for a second because I'm sure this is true of a significant percentage of our audience that there's a range of concerns that they have with respect to how to mitigate risk. And, you know, they might be afraid to fly, they might be afraid of catching esoteric illnesses when they hit the news, but they don't feel any fear when reaching for their phone and texting while driving or texting while walking as a, as a pedestrian, you know, crossing the street, which you see more and more. And if that's you, there's such a mismatch between the actual risk you're incurring w with what you do casually and what you're spending your time worrying about. It's just, there's no reason to worry about anything if you're still texting while driving. That's the first thing you need to worry about. And I recently heard on the radio that the incidence of pedestrians being killed had doubled in a big city where I was listening to this. And the reasons proffered for this never referenced a smartphone. And they, they were saying, well, maybe there are just more pedestrians now. People are out walking more. But from the side of one who now is scrupulous about not texting while driving, but you know, I, I certainly had my moments once we were first getting these phones in hand, it strikes me as absolutely obvious what would be killing pedestrians in greater numbers now. Because the moment which is most tempting to text is the moment when you're at a you're at a red light and you just decide to check your phone and that checking of the phone begins to extend past the point where you're 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 now the light's green and you're moving but you're still going slow enough that you imagine you can tolerate a few more seconds of phone interaction and so it is with the pedestrians that you see people crossing the street all the time never looking at anything but their phones you've got inattention on both sides of this and it's nuts. I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm sure we're talking about thousands of people every year who are being killed or injured by um, this one use case. I don't know if you are on the side of, I'm sure ER docs see this all the time, but it is a very strange situation we're in where we're quite obviously worried about the wrong things. Yeah. I mean, I think exactly what you said. And, and, and I think it's this notion of control that, oh, I can do it. I, I, I'm a great driver. I, you know, or I cross the street all the time. I, I, I'm in control of my phone. I'm pushing the buttons. And so people feel that there's less risk if they're doing the action as opposed to something being foisted on them like a virus or, you know, some crazy infection on an airplane. 
they feel that, that that it's it's somewhat safer, which is completely erroneous. Okay, so what other actionable advice do you have here? What, what about with respect to diet? Diet is obviously an area where people, I think for understandable reasons, live with significant uncertainty. I, I, I've said this somewhere before. I consider it one of the greatest embarrassments of modern science that there's any diversity of opinion at all about what human beings should eat so as to be healthy. I mean, how is it that we still don't have a rock-solid consensus on what is a healthy diet? And not only do we not have a consensus, you can have seemingly scientifically trained people recommend the opposite diets. I mean, you can get just the eat as much saturated fat as you possibly can diet to whatever you do, cut out saturated fat. And the, uh, as far as I can tell, the only thing that you can get everyone to agree on is that cutting down sugar is virtually always a good idea. There's no one who will say, by all means, eat as much sugar as you can. But that's where total lack of controversy stops. So, I mean, do you have a sense of what people should be eating so as to idiot-proof their diets? Well, I think, you know, I think it, it's, it's people love, they can talk about their diets endlessly and vary what diet they're on endlessly. And, you know, just what your, your point about sugar is kind of interesting because yes, you should, you know, it's common sense and common knowledge to, to limit your sugar. Um, but sugar has become vilified to the point where people think that sugar is causing cancer, which, you know, you certainly it can be associated with some cancers, but then people twist that to say, I'm going to cut out sugar and that's going to cure my cancer. And sugar is feeding my cancer cells. So if I don't eat sugar in my diet, I will, my cancer will go away, which is complete nonsense and, you know, deadly, obviously. You know, I think for, for diets, you know, again, my head is spinning when I hear about the newest you know, there's, it used to be called Atkins, now it's called keto, and then there's paleo and gluten-free and, you know, sugar-free, and I'm cutting this and I'm cutting that. And, you know, the boring idea of moderation, which seems so uninteresting, and you're not going to, you know, write a book about have a moderate diet and, and eat a little bit of everything and, you know, eat until you're full. And eating should not be something that you're doing from a pouch because we have teeth that you know it's become this overwhelming you know whether it's a fad or a trend that comes and goes it is it is complete utter nonsense in my in my view i think that you know this notion of foods having more power than they actually do has created this society of you know we're so focused on food and and people can spend their days you know, talking about their diet and focusing on their diet. And, you know, it certainly gives people something to do, but, it, you know, it's a complete waste of, of time and energy and it doesn't necessarily make, make somebody healthier. I think people sort of jump the gun by saying, if you eat this certain food, it's going to do this certain thing to my body. And it's not that simple. You know, we have a pretty complex system going on inside of our bodies that if you eat a superfood, it's not going to make you a superhuman person. So yeah, certain foods have been fetishized. I, I think I noticed recently that kale, which was, you know, probably this decade's most remarked superfood, now has some downside. I think there's been some report on 
if you're replacing sal, you know, all salad with kale, you're probably getting too much of some toxin. The other shoe is continually dropping on many of these recommendations, but it is slightly alarming that there's, and again, this is just anecdotal information, when getting advice from medical authorities, you know, let's say a cardiologist, you can get nutritional advice that seems starkly antiquated. I was recently talking to a cardiologist who recommended that I eat less cholesterol. And as far as I know, I mean, there's basically no nutrition scientist now who thinks that dietary cholesterol is what moves the needle in terms of a person's lipid profile and risk for heart disease. I don't know if that is still a controversial point, but like, you know, being outside of medicine and just consuming more of what one reads from people who are spending all their time focused on the nutrition science side of it, that's just a kind of a crazy 20 or 30 year old recommendation. And yet I've had a cardiologist give it to me in the last three months. Is there a way in which it's reasonable to worry that medicine isn't necessarily up to speed on all of these questions? Well, yeah, I think some of it is, you know, oh, we're, you know, how, how would you be a cardiologist and not say, you know, cut down your cholesterol and fat? It just seems kind of sort of flipped to say that. And, you know, you know, I think some of the sort of older school people may have sort of that older notion that, you know, you shouldn't have this kind of food, you know, eggs have been considered. I remember, you know, in the seventies and eighties when all of a sudden eggs were, were the toxin of the time. And now, you know, we're back to eating eggs. So, you know, certainly there are some things missed. And then also, you know, in medicine, cardiology specifically, sometimes the, the information gets flipped. For instance, a few years ago or within the last year or two, coconut oil was the big thing that the American Heart Association was, was recommending for heart health until some new data came out saying that coconut oil was, oh, n- never mind, it's actually bad for your heart. Don't have coconut oil. What about all those people that were, you know, drinking coconut oil for the last two years? So, you know, some of it is just that the information changes over time. And, you know, I think that, you know, I have had patients, you know, I always say vitamins are unnecessary. And then some people will have been telling me, well, my doctor's recommending vitamins. So what is it? Is it, you know, the doctor says it's good or bad. So, you know, there is, you know, just as you're going to have two surgeons recommend two different pieces of information, you may have some doctors who say, you know, have this kind of diet or that kind of diet. But, you know, I think diet in of itself is, it's more than just what we eat. It's, it's how we eat. It's become, you know, sort of this, this kind of funny activity that has, you know, because of that, we've lost the enjoyment in food, you know, you, this, these starvation diets or detox diets where, you know, this notion of cleansing your body of, you know, quote unquote toxins, which is complete nonsense or, you know, eating on the run or eating all you can eat, you know, that's sort of this whole other idea. Like, why do you need to eat all you can eat? Can't you just eat until you're full or why do you have to eat so much? So, you know, I think whatever the doctor recommends is, you know, you need to sort of understand if that if that's something logical or just, you know, old school, you know, cut down your salt or cut down your cholesterol. But I think it's also just this whole notion of diet has become, you know, it's it's just it's not just part of your life. It becomes this whole sort of way of mm. of being. Some of these diets acquire a kind of quasi-religious significance in people's lives. 
But I think a lot of this is also justified by the fact that there are people who have specific needs where a change in diet can radically change their own perception of their health. I mean, there are people who are gluten intolerant or I guess, you know, or have celiac disease. And, you know, for them, obviously a change in diet changes the game entirely. And then that message begins to migrate and get exported to everyone else. And we assume that, okay, we'll all be better off if we stop eating gluten. Yeah. And, you know, gluten is is a biggie and, you know, celiac disease is on the rise and it's a horrible illness when it's not recognized and, and addressed. And when it is, you know, by cutting out gluten, it's, you know, it is life-changing for, for this population. And, you know, there are some people who are, you know, quote unquote, gluten intolerant where, you know, they get some stomach upset when eating gluten and they stop eating gluten and they feel better, but that doesn't make gluten this horrible entity. You know, most people think gluten is a carb. It's not even a carbohydrate, it's a protein. So people translate, you know, the gluten in celiac disease or, or people who are gluten intolerant to, I'm going to cut out gluten and be healthier. And, you know, the problem is then you substitute other things, which are not necessarily, you know, a lot of the gluten-free food, it tastes so good because they add a lot of oil or rice flour, which isn't necessarily better than wheat. But people, you know, have this sort of false notion that they're doing something that's healthful because, you know, it's in the health food section of the, mm. of the store. Is there anything else that you think you would dispense as, as generic advice to people as far as, on some level, it's freeing up some bandwidth around worrying about health and how to modify one's life so as to be as healthy as possible. I mean, is it, it, the net result of reading your book and talking to you it always comes down to less worry on some level, which attests to your bedside manner. What do you think, as we get to the end of our conversation here, what, what do you think people should have as a strategy for thinking about these things in their lives? Because everyone, if you live any amount of time, especially in the developed world, everyone will find themselves being faced with a kind of wide range of fairly intricate and startling medical decisions and life choices. And your advice is that it can be simpler to navigate that than many people recognize. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously diet is a big part of everybody's life. And I think, you know, the problem with, with these extreme changes in diet is that, you know, people will make as an equivalent eating something to an outcome. And that's, that's usually not the case. You know, for instance, if you have, you know, eat antioxidants, that's, that's another buzzword that you're going to not oxidize and have free radicals and, and you will not get cancer. And people put, you know, I'm going to drink my anti-cancer shake and not get cancer. And I think there's, you know, a little bit of a false sense of control when people do that. And, you know, I think in general, we're, we are bombarded with health information on a minute to minute basis, all of us, doctors included. So when, you know, we hear this extreme piece of information in the news, it's very easy to panic and, you know, or jump on the bandwagon. So, you know, cell phones cause cancer and, you know, or Ebola is hitting the United States or, you know, watch out for Zika this summer. You know, these are extreme, terrifying pieces of information or, you know, the opposite, you know, coconut oil is going to help you live forever. And, you know, I always recommend that when you hear something that's so extreme and so different from what you're used to doing on a daily basis, 
that you have to take a step back and and think about what that really means in perspective, what it means for your life, and and then not lose focus and perspective on what's really important. You know, basic, you know, eating a balanced diet, getting a flu shot, not texting and driving. These are things that are not going to be headline news. It's not going to pop up on your on your smartphone as an alert. Oh, by the way, this number of people didn't get the flu because they got the flu shot. This is not going to be headline news, but that's what people are sort of losing sight of and focusing and controlling, trying to control these other aspects of their lives and, you know, and being less healthy for it. You know, for instance, I'm going to cross the street and do this one text because I know the timing of the car and I'm not going to get hit by a car because I have control over it. And that, you know, that's a completely false sense of, of security. And that's, you know, I think, as you said, you know, why we're seeing so many people die in pedestrian car accidents because people are, you know, not thinking. Well, so before I let you go, I think we should touch on the vaccine question briefly because you, you and I actually did a blog interview a couple of years ago that was entirely focused on that question. So people can read that if they want the full story. But the short form admonition here, what is it, Nina? Do vaccines cause autism uh, or should we get our children vaccinated? Vaccines do not cause autism. We should get our children vaccinated and we should get our children vaccinated on time, meaning that there are designated schedules that are created by the CDC, by the American Academy of Pediatrics, by the American Association of Family Practitioners that are on schedule for a reason. And that reason is that most of the vaccines don't work after the first or second shot even. You need, that's what these booster shots are. And when kids start falling through the cracks and making up these completely ridiculous, unfounded vaccine schedules by there are a few doctors who actually promote these, This is why we are seeing these illnesses come back. It's purely related to large populations not getting vaccinated and not getting vaccinated on time. And, you know, there's this idea that, oh, my my precious, perfect, clean, pure child doesn't want to be tainted with these toxins. Well, I, you know, there are more bacteria and viruses during the birth process that a child is exposed to than, than getting a vaccine. The smallpox vaccine that most of us, that all of us got in this, you know, if we were born before 1975, had more immunologic hit than all of the vaccines that kids get from ages zero to two. But we didn't have an increase in autism back in the 60s and 70s. So it is not vaccines that has been showed countless times across multiple countries, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of children getting vaccines, getting multiple vaccines during one visit has zero impact on development, on growth. The only thing it does is it prevents these illnesses. And these illnesses, some of them were close to being eradicated until people stopped vaccinating their kids. Yeah, although obviously this is confounded by the fact that as with any intervention, there's some percentage of people who have a bad reaction. It's possible to have a bad reaction to a vaccine and it's possible to have a false association between the timing of a vaccine and the discovery that a child has autism, hence the sense that there's still a story to be told about the downside of vaccines. Right. It's not a cause and effect, though. So, 
you know, going back to any sort of risk, you know, it's like I tell patients, you know, there's more of a risk of a car accident getting to your surgery than having the surgery itself. So, you know, the vaccine timing is timed with a lot of autism diagnoses. Vaccines are not 0% risk, but the the percent risk of real major vaccine injury is, you know, on the billionths of percents. So it's ex- so extremely small and so extremely rare to have a true, you know, negative outcome from a vaccine that, you know, it's still the risks of the illness far outweigh right. the risks of the vaccines. Well, Nina, I'm not sure what you saved lives with this conversation, but I expect you saved some worry and uh, some misappropriation of energy and effort here. So hopefully it's, it's benefited many people to uh, hear us discuss these issues. And uh, pretty soon it'll be Monday and you can actually go and save lives in your day job. <laughs> Thanks. Well, it was a lot of fun to talk and, you know, raise some good issues. Thank you. Again, the book is Hype and uh, I highly recommend people get it. Next time, Nina, we'll, uh, when we have another discovery that the private schools in our nation's cities have vaccination rates lower than sub-Saharan Africa, which occasioned our last conversation on the topic. We'll, we'll, we'll do it again and, and remind people that children need to be vaccinated. Excellent. Hopefully <laughs> okay. not, but yeah. yes, okay. <laughs> could okay. happen. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast, or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.